Take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 5. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are honored to have you with us. And we're in a series of messages through Paul's letter of Ephesians. And while you're doing that, let me just recognize some special folks here this morning. Those of you who have been Cornerstone members for some time, remember uh, Tim and Marcia Judy who are uh, back home today. Uh, guys, stand up so everybody can see you. We just want to welcome you home to Cornerstone. <clears throat> Good to see you guys. <clears throat> and I know that if I had chosen a text that I had already preached at Cornerstone, Marcia Judy would have reminded me of it after church this morning because she keeps a record of every text I preach. She marks it and the date. Uh, she used to do that. So um, uh, I want you to uh, look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 with me this morning as Paul sp- comes to begin this fifth chapter and he's speaking about um, uh, the love of God. <clears throat> This morning, or last night, we were all um, uh, saddened by the the news of the death of Senator John McCain. And uh, this morning, I I read uh, a letter um, uh, that his daughter, Megan, had written about her father. It goes like this. My father, United States Senator John Sidney McCain III, departed this life today. I was with my father at his end as he was with me at my beginning. In the 33 years we shared together, he raised me, taught me, corrected me, comforted me, encouraged me, and supported me in all things. He loved me, and I loved him. He taught me how to live. His love and his care, ever-present, always unfailing, took me from a girl to a woman. All that I am is thanks to him. Now that he is gone, the task and this is what part I want you to think, uh, think about with me. All that I am, I, all that I am is thanks to him. Now that he is gone, the task of my lifetime is to live up to his example, his expectations, and his love. My father's passing comes with sorrow and grief for me, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. He was a great fire who burned bright, and we lived in his light and warmth for so very long. We know that his flame lives on in each of us. The days and years to come will not be the same without my dad, but they will be good days filled with life and love because of the example he lived for us. Friend, I want you to understand this morning, there is nothing like the power of example. Samuel Johnson once wrote, Example is always more effective than teaching. Albert Schweitzer said, Example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. You see, children become like their parents. Churches become like their leaders. Students become like their teachers. All because of the power of example. There may be no greater power on earth to change the behavior of others than one's example. Well, if you look here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul comes to talk about that very thing. Paul begins with one of the most startling admonitions 
in the New Testament. Look what he says there in verse 1. He says, be imitators of God. James Montgomery Boyce says, this is the only place in the Bible where these words occur. And what makes them so startling is that they point to a standard beyond which there is no other. In other words, he's saying Paul is telling us as believers to follow the highest example there is. There is no greater example than that of God. How is it possible to imitate one who is so infinitely above us? the sovereign God of the universe. Well, Paul exhorts believers to imitate God as beloved children. In other words, just as a son should imitate a good father or a daughter should imitate a good mother, so should the children of God imitate God, our heavenly father. So to imitate God in the context of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, is to walk in love. Now Paul begins this chapter with an appeal to this great principle. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Practically speaking, Paul is saying we should not fall into a life of sin, but rather live a life of love. I want you to take your Bible, and we're going to read this morning, verses 1 through 7. Now, this message is in two parts. I've divided the message into the first two verses, which will form the text for this morning, and the uh, verses 3 through 7 as the text for next Sunday. This morning, we're going to talk about the pattern for perfect love is Jesus. Next Sunday, I'm going to talk about the punishment for perverted love is judgment. And that's what Paul talks about in verses 3 through 7. So let's just read it and you'll get an idea of why I've divided it the way I have done. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But then he says in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So Paul makes a contrast here in these first seven verses between the love of God and the love of the world. And Paul says, you'd best not confuse them. In other words, you can't ride the fence as a believer. You must uh, walk in the love of God and reject 
the world's false understanding of what love is. So here's what I want you to take away from the message as I confuse Grant back there. Um, uh, here's the takeaway. Imitate God as Jesus did and walk in love. The best way that you and I can imitate Christ and follow his example is to walk in love. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here in these opening verses, we see God's pattern for love is the Lord Jesus himself. And we're to imitate um, uh, God by being like Jesus and walking in love ourselves. That word imitators in Greek is a term from which we get our English word mimic. Um, it means to, to copy closely or to repeat another's speech, their actions, or their behavior. It refers to someone who copies specific instruction or characteristics of another person. In other words, Paul comes in this first verse of chapter 5 and he says at the beginning, be mimickers, mimic God, be imitators of God, be examples of the love of God. That's what we are to do with God. We are to repeat um, his actions. We're to echo his speech. We're to duplicate his behavior as imitators of him. We're to mimic his characteristics, primarily his perfect love. Now, the whole of the Christian life is the reproduction of godliness as seen in the person of Christ. God's purpose in salvation is to transform mankind, to redeem men from sin, and to conform us to or transform us into the image of his son. Imitating Christ's love is possible because, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Well, you say, well, what kind of love is this that we're to walk in? What kind of love are we to um, uh, demonstrate in our life that was the love of Christ himself? Well, there are three characteristics of God's perfect love in these verses. In these two verses, we find at least three characteristics of God's perfect love. First of all, I want you to see that God's perfect love is forgiving. It's forgiving. Now, that word therefore is there for a reason. It refers back to the very last verse of chapter 4. Basically, five, chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 um, are a part of the preceding paragraph. So it should read like this. Go back to verse 32 of chapter 4. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Then he says, therefore, be imitators of God. He's already said, Christ, God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. 
as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friend, do you know the greatest evidence of love is undeserved forgiveness? The supreme act of God's love was to give his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, regardless of their background, regardless of how deep into sin they had fallen, regardless of how far away from God they had walked, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, God's love brought man's forgiveness. And because forgiveness is the supreme evidence of God's love, it will always be the most convincing proof of our own love for others. Love will always, always lead us to forgive anyone for anything. Just as love led Christ, God in Christ, to forgive us. Truth is, hear me very carefully on this, nothing more clearly discloses a hard, loveless heart than a lack of forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness betrays a lack of love. Because only love has the motive and the power to forgive. Friend, whatever someone may have done against you, no matter how terrible or hurtful or unjustified, Christ has paid the penalty for that person's sin. And because Christ paid the penalty for their sin, every single one of their sins, we have no right to hold any sin against that person. A sin which Christ has paid for on the cross. Now, Peter thought that forgiving someone up to seven times was a pretty good deal. He thought that was, you know, as, as far as, you know, you could go in forgiving someone, and he thought Christ would commend him for it. But Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, you're to keep on forgiving. You see, in Christ... Listen, all of our sins, all of our sins have been forgiven. Now, aren't you thankful all of your sins have been forgiven? I mean, we say, I must tell Jesus. The only reason you and I can tell Jesus is because he's forgiven all of our sins. All of them, every single one of them. And what Paul wants us to understand, if we're going to follow the example of Christ, and if we're going to love with the love of God, then we ourselves must be willing to forgive anyone of every single sin they've ever committed. You say, well, that's kind of hard to do, preacher. Yeah, it is. In fact, you and I can't do that in our own power. Only a believer can do this. And it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and working through us. That's the love of God. That's the love of God at work in his children. Um, 
Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. You see, our love is to stretch to the limit in order to cover a multitude of sins. The greater our love, the more sins it will cover in forgiveness. John MacArthur says this, unforgiveness is the measure of self-righteousness just as forgiveness is the measure of love. Our ability to love and therefore to forgive, he says, depends on our sense of how much God has forgiven us. Friend, if you want to know what loving forgiveness looks like, take your Bible and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, I'm sure that um, uh, you've never read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. <clears throat> Paul's treatise on love. I want you to look there and see what Paul writes in verses 4 through 7. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. And look here in verse 5. It bears all things and endures. Or in verse 7, it bears all things and endures all things. Now, you want a scriptural example of that? Take your Bible and flip further to the left, all the way to the book of Genesis. And look in Genesis chapter 50. You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers? You remember what happened to Joseph? Joseph uh, had been sold by his brothers into slavery. Uh, he was taken into Egypt. There he was um, uh, made uh, a servant in Potiphar's household. Um, he was accused uh, by Pharaoh's wife of uh, uh, attempting to uh, 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 attack her. And so Joseph was thrown in prison. And um, while in prison, he interpreted some dreams for uh, some guys who worked for the king. Uh, uh, Joseph was eventually released. He was put in second command over Egypt. He's the one that helped the country there during a time of severe famine. Well, now Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt to get food, to get grain, to take back to their father. And all of that has passed. And now we come to the end of Genesis. And uh, Jacob has died. The brothers are now concerned. They thought that Joseph was only treating them good while their daddy was alive. But in fact, if you read beginning in verse 15 of chapter 50, we read where Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it... A to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And look at the last sentence of that verse. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friend, that's the love of God. 
That's the love of God working in his child's heart. How opposite of the world's reaction to when we're wronged. I mean, everywhere you look today, you hear people talking about what critical times we live in. How hard and calloused and mean-spirited everybody seems to be. And you know the sad thing is? It's not just those outside the church walls that have picked up this spirit of the age. That spirit of the age has crept right into the church of the living God. And Paul says... For you and I to claim to be a Christian and have that kind of attitude and spirit is to go against what God himself says should characterize the life of one of his children. You cannot love God and hate your brother. You cannot love God and be unwilling to forgive anyone for anything because whatever that thing is that they've done or said or acted against you Christ paid for on the cross and if Christ is paid for that sin guess what it's gone it's been forgiven and God says as I have forgiven them I need you to forgive them as well because you are my representative, my example to the people of this world. And they need to understand that I am a God who loves and I am a God who forgives. And you are a walking example of that to the people I put in your life. Paul says the first characteristic of perfect love, it's forgiving. Secondly, I want you to see that not only is it forgiving, but perfect love is unconditional. Now look in verse 2. Paul writes, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, biblical love is not a pleasant emotion or simply a good feeling about someone, but it's the giving of oneself for another's well-being. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we had it together, not when we were starting to get it together, not when we had it all together, but when we were sinners, Christ died for us out of unconditional love. Friend, God's love is... A love that loves for the sake of giving, not getting. With, un, with conditional love, if the conditions of our love are not met, then I feel no obligation to love. If we do not get, then we're not willing to give. But God makes no conditions on his love. Aren't you glad? God doesn't say, well, you know, Rick, if you do this and this and this today, if you straighten up in this area of your life, then I will start loving you more. No. Can I give you some good news this morning? God will never love you any more than he already does. 
He won't. He loves you perfectly with no conditions. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't get upset with his children, just like a parent gets upset with their own children when they disobey, when they rebel, when they do things or say things that are contrary to what is right. A parent disciplines their children. Why? Out of love. Why? Because they don't want to see them destroy themselves or hurt themselves. Discipline is not the opposite of love. You know what the opposite of love is? Indifference. Somebody who doesn't care. Somebody who no longer cares what you do or how you live your life. But God's love is unconditional. I read a story years ago about a soldier who came home from the Vietnam War. And before he got to his parents' home, he he called them from San Francisco. He said, Mom, Dad, he said... I'm coming home, I've um, uh, been uh, 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 on leave, I'm coming home, and I was wondering, I've got a favor to ask, I've got a friend with me who's uh, injured, he, he, he lost an arm and a leg uh, in the war, he's got no place to go, he's got no family, and I was wondering if I could bring him home with me, and the parents said, well son, Someone with such a handicap would be a burden on us. You know, we have our own lives to live. We have a certain lifestyle that we've gotten used to. And we can't let something like this interfere with our lives. I think you should just come home and your friend will find a place to live on his own. At that point, the son hung up the phone. The parents didn't hear from him about for several days. They heard nothing. And then all of a sudden, the phone rang. And it was from the San Francisco Police Department. And they were sharing the bad news that the couple's son had died after falling from a building And the police believed that it was suicide. So the grief-stricken parents left, flew to San Francisco, and they were taken to the city morgue to identify the body of their son. Lo and behold, as they looked at the body of their son, to their horror, they discovered he only had one arm and one leg. You see, the son was trying to get a feel from his parents how they would accept him because of his injuries from the war. And when he found out that their love was conditional, it sent him into a place where no one should ever have to go, a feeling that he was no longer worthy It was no longer acceptable. See, it's easy for us to love people who are attractive or people who have it all together, people who don't have any problems, people who've never done anything really wrong. Those kind of people are easy to love and accept, aren't they? But what about the difficult people in our lives? What about the people that have been hurt by life? What about the people that have 
severe hardships, the people that are needy, people that are hurting, the people that have brought a lot on themselves. What do we do with those folks? Paul says, we're to love like Christ. And when we love like Christ, we put no conditions on our love. Love is to be unconditional to the people God puts in our life. We're to love without reservation. Thankfully, there's someone who won't treat us and love us unconditionally. Someone who loves us with an unconditional love that welcomes us into the forever family. Warts and all. With all of the stains of this life, all of the regrets, all of the hardships, all of the mistakes and the failures, he says, come. Come. You are loved. You are welcomed by my Father. I pray that this church will be seen as a church not just inside these walls, but outside those walls. That that's a people, that's a group, that's a congregation of believers who will love you unconditionally. Unconditionally. That's the second characteristic of perfect love. There's a third characteristic in the second part of verse 2, and that is perfect love is self-sacrificing. Now, Paul writes, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, Jesus' giving himself for us as a sacrifice to God was a fragrant aroma to his heavenly Father. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice demonstrated in the fullest and most ultimate way God's kind of love. And what is that? The love that would even go to the farthest extreme to demonstrate his love. And that is to give one's life for another. The image Paul paints here is that of the Old Testament sacrifices where the people brought an offering to God in the temple and they sacrificed it upon the altar so that the, the fiery consumption would cause the odor of that sacrifice to rise up as it were, in, um, as it rose up, it was seen as a fragrance, a sweet fragrance going up to God the Father, and God would look down on that sacrifice, and God would be pleased with that sacrifice. Friend, there is no life of love without a degree of self-sacrifice. Imitating God means imitating Jesus, his son, and that means becoming a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Living like Jesus for the sake of others will involve both the giving of ourselves and the dying of self. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verses 12 and 13? Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
I read about a pastor who was counseling a couple who were having marital issues and um, uh, <clears throat> the um, uh, husband um, uh, spoke up in frustration at one point and he looked at his wife and he said to her, he says, but I don't understand. He said, I've given you anything a woman could want. I've given you a nice big house. I've given you all the clothes you could ever wear. I've given you a nice car to drive. I've given you, and he kept on, he just listed all of these things that he had provided for her. When he got through, the wife looked at him and she said, John, everything you say is true. You've given me everything but yourself. But yourself. You see, real love is not a matter of giving things. It's not even a matter of giving um, uh, words of affirmation. It's giving ourselves to another. To love as God loves is to love sacrificially by the giving of ourselves on behalf of others as Christ gave himself. And the Christian's walk in love is, is to extend to every person, believer and unbeliever alike. If God's love can reach out even to his enemies, how can we not extend love to our own enemies. If God loves his imperfect children with perfect love, how can we not love fellow believers whose imperfections we share? If we're to walk in the love of God, we must learn to admire ourselves as Jesus did. And we must walk in love towards those God puts in our life. Whether it's family members that are hard, difficult to live with, whether it's people we work with, neighbor down the street, fellow church members. Paul says, if we're a believer, as we profess, then walk in love. Imitate God and walk in love. Paul exhorted the believers in Thessalonica with these words. He says, may the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12. Paul says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. So that he, meaning God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. You know what he's saying? We talk about holiness a lot. We talk about the holiness of God. Do you know what? The one trait above all that characterizes the holiness of God is love. Love. Paul says, abound in love so that God can count it as holiness in your life. Why? Because that's who God is. He is a God of love. Former President Richard Nixon is infamous for 
his involvement in the Watergate scandal. Nixon disgraced both the presidency and the United States itself in the eyes of the world. When Vice President Hubert Humphrey died, Nixon attended Humphrey's funeral. There were dignitaries and um, from all over the country and from all over the world in attendance at Humphrey's funeral. When Richard Nixon walked in, he was made to feel unwelcome. Nobody would even hardly look at him, much less speak to him. Nixon felt the ostracism directed towards him. And then walked in the then serving president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Carter was from a different political party, but he was well known for his honesty and his integrity. As Carter moved towards his seat that had been assigned to him, he immediately changed course when he saw Richard Nixon standing off at a distance. Carter went over to the former president. He smiled and he genuinely embraced Richard Nixon and then invited him to come and sit with him. He said to the former president, welcome home, Mr. President, welcome home. That incident was reported by Newsweek magazine, which wrote these words. If there was a turning point in Nixon's long ordeal in the wilderness, it was that moment and that gesture of love and compassion. You see, Jimmy Carter gifted Richard Nixon with the love of God and with his compassion and mercy. Nixon certainly had done nothing to deserve it. It was an act of pure grace on Carter's part. And God says in the same way that I have gifted you with my grace. Go out and do likewise to everyone that you come in contact with. Let them know that I am a God of grace. I am a God of second chances. I am a God who forgives. I am a God who loves the whole wide world. And may God's people do the same. Stand with me if you will.